Welcome to Data Skeptic. Data Skeptic brings you discussions about how data is changing our world. Our interviews are conversations with thought leaders in topics like data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Today on Data Skeptic, we take a quick step away from our main theme of fake news and jump a little bit back in time to when we were talking about artificial intelligence on Data Skeptic. Today I'm interviewing Professor Deborah Gordon. Amongst many other accomplishments, she's the author of Ant Encounters, Interaction Networks and Colony Behavior. Before I read this book, I had no idea the depth to which science had learned things about ant behavior and what we might call ant intelligence. After completing it, I really wanted to share her work with this audience. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Deborah, welcome to Data Skeptic. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I completed your book, Ant Encounters, earlier this year. I want to say something, and I don't mean this as hyperbole, but I really thought it was a page-turner, and I couldn't put it down. That's great. That's not something you often say about nonfiction. For those who haven't had the pleasure yet, can you describe what the book is all about? The book is an introduction to the idea that the way that an ant colony works without central control is to use patterns of simple encounters. So ants respond to the rate at which they meet other ants, and in the aggregate, that regulates the behavior of the colony. Yeah, it's that frequency that was very interesting to me. I had not previously been exposed to that idea. Could you tell me maybe a practical example of um, what ants are doing and how those encounters will alter their behavior? One example is the behavior of harvester ants in the desert. Uh, the foragers go out and search for seeds, and then they come back, and they're inside the nest for a little while until they go out on their next trip. And an outgoing forager uses the rate at which it meets returning foragers to decide whether to leave again. Since the ants are searching for seeds, the amount of time a forager is outside depends on the availability of food. If there are more seeds out there, they find them more quickly, they come back more quickly, and more ants go out. So it's a simple kind of feedback that links the amount of food out there to the experience of an ant without an ant having to assess how much food there is. Interesting. So does that mean that ants are counting? No, they don't have to count. They only have to use the rate at which they meet. So tell me a little bit more then about memory. How do they recall the, those rates? It works like a neuron. Think about how a neuron decides whether to fire. A neuron gets a charge from another neuron, and when enough stimulation accumulates, the neuron fires. But that stimulus leaks because electrical charge leaks out the body of the axon. Each stimulus has an impact which then decays. If it gets enough stimuli quickly enough before the rest of them have decayed, then it'll fire. And that's how the ants assess interaction rate also. So we used, in fact, a model based on this idea of a leaky integrator, which is what neurons are, to measure the behavior of the ants, and it fit very well. So the idea is that each time an ant experiences an interaction with another ant, it stimulates a neurophysiological response, which decays. And if the ants get enough interactions before the last one has decayed, then it pushes the ant over a threshold where it's likely to leave the nest and forage. But if it doesn't get another interaction for a long time, then it kind of forgets anything ever happened and the process has to start again. So one of the impressions I took away from the book was, and, and obviously you will see my bias here as a student of computer science, but I felt like, oh, these ants, they're very simple programs. They're executing very basic rules. Is, do you find that that's a fair assessment? Yes. So then where does the intelligence of an ant lie? 
are really not very intelligent. Uh, you could maybe say that colonies are intelligent in that they can adjust to changing conditions and do a lot of complicated things, but really it's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of how all of those very simple interactions um, in the aggregate produce an outcome, and that's very analogous to a computer. Yeah, there's certainly an emergent property to it when these simple procedures kind of uh, fit together very well, I guess. Would it be fair to say then that ant behavior is really more the product of evolution than of learning? Well, absolutely, yes. So these algorithms, these simple rules that the ants are using are the product of evolution. So what's evolving is the way that the uh, rules that put together simple interactions produce some outcome in the behavior of the colony, and that's what natural selection acts on. So do ants get, you know, I, I know they specialize to some degree in tasks. Are they able to improve and learn something about their task over their lifetime? Well, first of all, they don't um, specialize as much as um, people may think. Mm -hmm. I know it's part of the popular version of ants that each ant has its job. You know, in the movie Ants, each larva is assigned its task at birth by a bureaucrat with a clipboard. But in fact, ants do move from one task to another. Early on in many species, and of course, we don't know what goes on in most species, but the ones we do know about, the ants work inside, maybe taking care of the other younger ants, the juvenile forms, the larvae and the pupae, when the ant is young, and later in its life, it moves to work outside the nest and to forage. An ant moves through a series of tasks. But to get back to your question, we don't really have any evidence that an ant gets much better at a task by doing it. With ants then not being specialists, the way popular opinion seems to have formalized, how does an ant determine if and when they should switch their task? Again, they seem to use the rate of encounters. We can do experiments in which we change the need for ants performing some task, and ants will switch tasks in response. It seems as though when there's some condition that creates a need for more ants, maybe the ants meet, for example, um, more ants doing cleanup work and there's some positive feedback on that. So ants are more likely to switch when they meet other ants doing a certain task. Probably the rules for switching tasks depend on encounter rate. And we have found that for some tasks in some species. Uh, we don't know yet if that's generally true, but it looks like it may be. Yeah, that's another great point. I mean, ants seem to be a, a pretty diverse uh, label. Can you talk a little bit taxonomically about the amount of species there are and the diversity and evolutionary path they've taken? Yes, there are 14,000 species of ants that have been named so far. There are probably many going extinct in the tropical forest as the tropical forests are being cut down while we're having this interview. So we don't know how many there are. There are probably many more species than that. They've been around for um, about 130 million years, and they're very, very diverse. So there are ants that live in every conceivable habitat on Earth. They're everywhere, and they make a living in all kinds of amazing ways. They nest in the ground, they nest in trees, they nest in the burrows of other insects, they nest all over the place, they eat all kinds of things. So they're really very diverse. And We've studied only a tiny fraction of the ants, so there are maybe 50 species that anybody has ever looked at in detail, and so that leaves 13,950 that we don't know much about. <laughs> well, a good opportunity for grad students, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot to learn about ants. 
Ants do indeed live everywhere, including uh, some in my kitchen, or at least maybe in the yard and, and are uh, making frequent vacations to the kitchen. Yeah. I have to tell you that uh, my wife and I are having a bit of a dispute because she wants to poison the colony, but after reading your book, I don't have the heart to do it. Can I dissuade them in any way? She won't succeed anyway. So you're in uh, Southern California, right? That's correct, yes. So they're almost certainly Argentine ants, which is an invasive species that came from Argentina on sugar at the beginning of the 20th century. And they are everywhere in the world where there's a Mediterranean climate like we have in California. That is two seasons, basically, hot, dry summer and cold, wet winter. And they come inside when conditions outside are bad. So they come inside when it's hot and dry looking for water. When it starts to rain, they go back out. And then in the winter, if there's a period of really sustained rain, they come inside looking for someplace warm and dry. And although it looks like they're after food, the food is just an extra bonus that we might provide once they're inside. But they're not looking for food. They're looking for either for water or for refuge from too much water. And when things get better, they go back out. So poison won't work because they make many nests. They have a nest inside your house, probably when they're inside. Um, and then when things get better, they'll move back out. But they have many queens. So even if you manage to kill the queen that happens to be living under your kitchen sink, you won't kill the rest of the queens in the colony. So you really can't destroy the colony. So I don't like them any more than your wife does when they're in my house. But um, I appreciate that poison doesn't really help. Well, we've had some hot days, so uh, it's very consistent with what you were telling me. Yeah. On an especially hot day, I like to get cool. Um, one thing that hasn't happened yet is a surprising encounter you mentioned in the book. Where might those ants go? <laughs> they might go um, anywhere in the, uh, in the walls of your house. Um, they might come up through the drains. Um, but eventually they'll go back outside because they prefer to be outside. Oh, I was thinking specifically of the calls you sometimes get where people are surprised to find a b big big cluster in their home freezers. Oh, yes. So they're attracted. If you have a, a, a freezer that has a top compartment um, and it has a liner, there's something in the liner on the freezer door that they like. A thing about Argentine ants and there are other species of ants like this is that they lay trail pheromone everywhere they go. So trail pheromone is a chemical that they put down on the surface where they're walking and uh, an ant will follow that scent. Um, so it's, it's another kind of interaction with a short lag. One ant puts out the chemical, the other ant finds it and tends to go in that direction. But they don't do what you might think is the, the ordinary way that ants use trail pheromone. It's not that they go find the freezer and go back and tell everybody. They're just putting down pheromone as they go. So if a few ants get into the freezer because they're inspecting the liner, then they're going to pull other ants in behind them because everybody's laying pheromone as they go. And so you end up with a lot of dead ants in the freezer. Well, it's not very adaptive, but they haven't really evolved to deal with freezers. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Uh, that's obviously kind of, I'm thinking of ants as computer programs, if you'll humor me with that. And this is like a bug in the software. Uh, evolution will have to fix it, but how detrimental is it to the colony in the meantime? They tend to be pretty big. By the time they're getting into people's houses, it's probably a pretty big colony. The part of the colony, the nest that's inside the house, is only a small part of a larger colony that in the summer consists of many nests, and then in the winter they contract back into a big single one. So losing a bunch of workers probably isn't going to kill the colony. But they've only had, what, I don't know, 100 years to respond to freezers, maybe not that much. And in 130 million years, that's not very long.
Oh, very good observation, yeah. I think most people have the general idea that ants tend to communicate via pheromones. Uh, can you tell me the extent to which they have like developed, uh, would, we even, would we call it a language of scent? How, how do you think of it? Ants do produce many different chemicals, so they have a lot of glands, each of which produces a different chemical. And they also are covered with a layer of grease that they spread on themselves and on each other by grooming. It keeps them from drying out. Many kinds of insects have this um, layer of, uh, they're called cuticular hydrocarbons, and they use those as well. But to get to language means that there's a kind of a correspondence or even use of the chemicals as a symbol, you know, this means this and this means that. And it seems pretty clear that they're not using the chemicals as symbols. Instead, you could say that they, again, have these basic rules that do link some kinds of behavior to encounters with some kinds of odors. So they use these chemicals spread on their bodies to distinguish who belongs to the same colony and who doesn't. And also, at least in some species we've studied, the ants performing different tasks come to smell different so they can distinguish a forager from a nest worker. Listeners, I want you to head over to brilliant.org slash data skeptic, all one word. If you haven't checked it out yet, you really need to look into Brilliant. It's math and science done right. Brilliant helps you learn more efficiently than lectures through interactive problem-solving-based courses. These courses are really well-paced and subdivided in this excellent way where they go lesson to lesson and you build up concepts as you go. It's the kind of thing you can do in your spare time or really commit a whole evening to. Either way, it'll fit your schedule. Their courses have memorable examples and they teach in this interactive visual way. Listen, I know probably the majority of you need to brush up on your linear algebra. I want you to think about doing that with Brilliant. They've got a great course in that. Myself, I just started quantum objects. Yeah, I know a little bit about quantum circuits, but I want to broaden that and understand more about quantum mechanics, and Brilliant's one of my first choices to help do that. See if all the interactive quizzes and guided tutorials are right for you. There are tons of courses and more being added all the time in math, science, and CS. Check it out for yourself at brilliant.org slash dataskeptic. So if uh, individual ants' behavior is relatively predictable, it seems like we could build good computer simulations. Uh, does that happen to be true in practice? Yes, we do that all the time. And how do you measure how closely they describe behavior? Because it seems to me that the colony emerges into these complex behaviors from simple rules, and that does seem to be a challenge to sometimes simulate, meaning you know, it's a very stochastic process. You know, any kind of modeling has the issue that you can construct a model that looks like the behavior you're trying to describe, but there could be an infinite number of models that would give the same outcome. So when you produce a model and it looks like the behavior that you see in the real world, that doesn't prove that that's how the world works. Still, that's the first step. So, for example, when we were looking at the reaction of the harvester ants to encounters in their foraging decisions using the leaky integrator model, what we did was to create simulations using the model based on parameters that we got from the data and then look to see if the model behaves in the way that the ants did. That is, can we use that model to predict the behavior of other ants 
And when that fits pretty well, then we can say, okay, we have a model that describes the behavior. We can't say for sure that the ants might not be doing it some other way, but now we have an explanation. So we use simulations for that. Very neat. I would imagine that there aren't standard off-the-shelf ant simulation software packages. Can you tell me a little bit about how you manage the simulations? Yes. Uh, another one that we just published um, is about the trail networks of an arboreal ant species called turtle ants that I've been studying in the trees in Mexico and uh, working with collaborators at UC San Diego, Sakat Navaka and his grad student, Arjun Chandra Sekar. We just published a simulation of how the ants choose the junctions that they take in the vegetations. These ants stay in the trees. They never go to the ground. They can't, you know, fly through the air. So an ant, as it's walking along, can only go where there's a little stem or a vine or something to walk on. And at every junction in this tangle of vegetation, the ant has to decide which way to go. And they use trail pheromone like the Argentine ants. They lay trail pheromone as they go. So an ant's decision about which edge to take depends on how much pheromone has been left by the ants that came before. We've been able to show in experiments with ants not in simulation that they manage, of course, to find things. They have to find food, so they can't always stay on the same trail or they'd never find anything. So we did some simulations with two parameters. One is the rate of decay of the pheromone, which sets how long, at a given junction, how long an ant is likely to turn the same way as the previous ant before the pheromone, which is volatile, has decayed. So one parameter is the decay of the pheromone, and the other parameter is the probability of exploring, you could call it searching or making a mistake or exploring is the same thing, the probability of taking an edge off a junction that wasn't the one that had the most pheromone. So going the wrong way, which is how they find things. And with just these two parameters, we were able to recreate the behavior of the ants in a simulation, which is in a way much simpler than what the ants are doing because it's just a 2D grid a graph and the ants make choices at the corners. And still it was sufficient to show a lot of similarities to what the ants are doing. In particular, what we did was to look to see what would be the parameter values that would work best in the simulation for example, when there's a rupture, which frequently happens to the real ants, a lizard runs through and it breaks a little vine and the ants have to find another path. And I have been doing experiments in which I cut the branch and see how the path recovers. So we looked to see what were the parameter values in the simulation that would make the ants most successful in maintaining a trail and in repairing one. And those turned out to match quite well the values that the ants are actually using, which we could measure. So again, that doesn't prove that the ants are using an algorithm like the one that we simulated, but it shows that the one that we simulated is consistent with the one that the ants are using. And now we're working to incorporate some of the variability that we see in the vegetation into the model. So having got this simple model that seems to basically predict how the ants are making these trail networks, now we're going to add another layer of complexity that corresponds to what we see in the real world. Very neat. It seems like the simplicity of ant behavior makes this um, 
I guess I want to use the word rigor, a little bit more rigorous than some experiments with behavior. You know, you could do experiments on humans, but we're very complicated. And so you can have a testable hypothesis, and it's, as you said, you can readily confirm it. It makes verifiable predictions, and it's also falsifiable. Yes. If you create a scenario where you predict one and you don't see the behavior, it seems like it works like clockwork. Is, is that how you guys explore a hypothesis testing when doing ant research? Yes, but I wouldn't say it works like clockwork because ants aren't really fully deterministic. You know, they don't always do the same thing in the same conditions. So you have to be ready for a lot of noise and you have to have a lot of patience because if you expect the ant to do the right thing every time, um, you'll be disappointed. Gotcha. So those rules are actually probabilistic then, is that right? Yes, it's all stochastic, yes. Very fascinating. I know you've just gotten back from doing some field work. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and why uh, you have to go to the field? Why can't we do everything in a laboratory? Well, in the laboratory, we can ask ants to solve problems that we create, but we can't learn about the problems that they're actually solving without seeing what they're really doing. The main thing that any organism, including ants, have to do is to respond to the way that the environment changes. So in the lab, we can't create the dynamics that ants or any other organism has evolved to deal with. So I think it's sometimes we have to do things in the lab because we can't see everything in the field, but in the lab, ants don't do all the amazing things they do in the field, and we can't see the environment that they've evolved to deal with. So I love to watch ants in their natural environment because that's where all the cool things that they do are really happening. Yeah. And I was working in, in Mexico um, with these arboreal ants that I was just talking about, the turtle ants. And what we were doing this time was to try to understand not just how they make the choices that they do, but to try to characterize the topology of the network that they're searching in in order to understand why they don't go some places and do go others. So we spent a lot of time mapping the nodes that they didn't take to try to characterize the shape and the connectivity of the vegetation and understand how they make their choices. One of the things that was kind of impressive to me in the book was your discussion of an experiment you did to test for diplomacy. Because I think of that uh, with, you know, obviously a very human bias here, but that's, to me, an advanced component of intelligence. It requires one to have some social instincts and think about other people and other groups of people. Can you talk about uh, that experiment and uh, what we know about the degree to which ant intelligence has advanced in the directions human intelligence has? Ant colonies have neighbors and they have to interact with the other colonies. And this is, of course, an ongoing process that happens through repeated encounters. In the lab, we had two different colonies and a plexiglass barrier with a, with a cute little door that we could open to let ants go through. We had the individuals marked. So these are harvester ants. They're pretty big and you can mark them by putting a colored paint on them. And uh, once the paint dries, they don't smell it and they're fine and we can tell who's who. And we wanted to know whether the same ants would be the ones that would be interacting with their neighbors. This is based on some earlier work which showed that colonies respond differently to encounters with their neighbors who they meet over and over than to encounters with ants much further away. And so we wanted to see if that was because particular ants were specialized in encountering their neighbors. So we looked to see whether 
ant number 72 with a blue dot on his head and a green dot on his abdomen would be the one that would go in, cross through the, the opening that we created and interact with the other colony. And we found out that that was not the case. And that actually led um, much later on to a model that isn't mentioned in the book because we did it since I wrote the book. And this was with Fernando Esponda, who is a computer scientist and works in computer security. We, we were able to model this behavior as a distributed algorithm. And so the idea is that each ant has a boundary in the space of possible odors that distinguishes the ants that it calls nestmates, that it recognizes as belonging to the same colony, and the ants that are not nestmates. And that over time, as it has encounters with other ants, that boundary shifts. But each ant is different. Each ant smells slightly different, and each ant has a different boundary. And so at any time, an encounter between neighboring colonies depends on which ants happen to meet and whether they identify the ants that they meet as being a nestmate or not a nestmate. Maybe the explanation for why colonies respond differently to their neighbors than to strangers is not because certain ants know the smell of the neighbors, but because the probability is high that the same ants will happen to meet the same neighbors over and over, whereas those ants will never have encountered colonies from far away, and so they might not respond to that smell as being a non-nestmate. So it is an alternative to the idea that every ant uh, has kind of a passport, you know, it has a, a certain smell that it identifies as the colony smell, and if it meets an ant with the wrong passport, it reacts. Instead, it's more like the immune system in a mammal, like in a person. Our immune system consists of many cells, each of which is tuned to recognize a different pathogen that it's met before. That's why we have vaccines, so that we will create cells that will recognize a certain pathogen. And the res immune response is this aggregate distributed response that depends on which cells happen to meet which pathogens. It's not that every cell knows everything that's supposed to be us and everything that's supposed to be other, but it's an aggregate response. I'm certainly impressed by the amount of interesting work that has, and advancements and things we've learned about ants and, uh, you know, follow up on some of the bibliographic references from the book. But uh, as you mentioned, there's 14,000 something species. There's certainly a limit to what we know. What are some of the interesting op or questions that most interest you that are open about studying this uh, I guess, species, uh, genus, or at what level do we study ants? Uh, they're, they're a family with many genera. Well, I think that ants are a great opportunity to think more generally about the match between the dynamics of the environment and the dynamics of their behavior. So we know that ants use these distributed algorithms to generate their behavior and that they can adjust to environmental change and it's an opportunity to see what kinds of algorithms work best in which kinds of changing conditions. I think it's a great opportunity to make comparisons among species that live in very different kinds of conditions and ask how they operate differently. And specifically to the artificial intelligence community, do you have any advice for what they can learn from studying research like yours? I think that the main lesson of the ants is that you can get something that looks like intelligence without a lot of intelligence. So what's really most intriguing to me about ants is how messy and noisy the system is and it still works. 
Well, Deborah, to wind up, uh, I definitely want to encourage people to go to Amazon or their bookseller of choice and pick up Ant Encounters. I can't recommend it enough. Where else can people follow you online and learn about your work? Well, they can go to my lab website. So if you look me up, um, you'll get to my lab website. It's hard to um, spell it out, but I'm Deborah M. Gordon, and I'm at Stanford, and um, it's easy to find. And in the on the homepage, there's a section which has some of the popular articles I've written and uh, links to TED Talks, and um, I think that'd be the best place to start. Wonderful. I'll have some of those things in the show notes for people to follow up on as well. Deborah, thank you again for taking the time to come on. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab.